Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 275. where tonight is already the end of the second day of Rosh El here, which is the first day of El. We know there's two days of Rosh the 30th day of Ov and the first day of El. So the countdown has begun. The countdown to Rosh Hashanah, the year Tovshin Pei. 5780. So in exactly 30 days from now will be Rosh Hashanah. So El is known as the month, the preparatory month, Chidush HaChaneh, the month that prepares us for this new year, for Rosh Hashanah, which of course encompasses the entire new year that comes, that follows. And it's also the Chidush HaChashbun, the month of accounting of the past year. So it really has two components to it accounting for the past and preparing for the future, which of course goes hand in hand because you can prepare for the future, but if you don't take account and accounting for the past, you can repeat mistakes, God forbid, or you don't improve properly. So in any good situation where there's a dim uh, where there's an accountability and there's a plan for the future, there's looking what was done, what can be done better, what can be improved, what can be corrected, and then you make the plan for the year to come. So the month of El encompasses both elements. And that's where we're at. And Reish Chedish, as we know, the, the emphasis on the word Reish, in Hebrew, the head of the month. It doesn't just say the beginning of the month, like Reish Hashanah, the head of the year, because like a head, it's not just the top. It's not just the beginning of the month. It's also the central nervous system that controls the entire body, the entire being. In this case, in time, the Reish Chedish, like it is in space, the head of the body is the central nervous system that controls the entire body. The head of the month is the central nervous system in time of the month that controls the entire month. So this is a powerful beginning. And with that begins this journey. The journey of day by day, all the different introspections and the different ways we increase in our good deeds. And as the Rebbe explains, the five different acronyms for the month of Elul, which correspond to the three pillars upon which the world stands. An acronym that refers to davening, prayer, an acronym referring to Teda, study of Teda, an acronym to Tzedakah. And then, of course, the two other acronyms, which is, refers to Tshuva and to Geula. So these five, uh, these five ideas, these five principles, encompass all of Judaism, all of Yiddishkeit, and therefore, in the month of El, we look at all of them, so that way the entire spectrum of life is addressed. We're also in the week of Pasha Sheftim. Sheftim, of course, immediately the name itself indicates an element of accountability. Sheftim v'sheitim titl l'cha b'chol she'recha. You shall appoint judges and law enforcers in all your gates, so even a basic level, what is a judge? What is a law enforcer? It's an accountability. It's accountability. It's to make sure that we are kept honest. So in the general sense of it, you have outside people who are appointed as judges and law enforcers to make sure that the nation, the people, the community, individuals follow the law. And, um, but on a personal level, as Chassidus brings, the Rebbe cites it quite a number of times, from the Sif Sekein Ala Teda that he says, Shevtim Shetim Lecha, Titim Lecha, Titim Lecha Bechol Sharecha. Referring to Sharecha, the word gates is also interesting here. It really means municipalities. But the word gates, he says, is that it's also referring 
to the judges and the law enforcers that we have to establish at the gates that connect a human being to the world around him or her. And there's seven gates. Shadecha goes to seven gates. The two eyes, two ears, the two nostrils, and the mouth. These are the interfaces that allow us to interact with the world around us. So you think of, a, let's say, a walled city. So there's the city, the people dwelling inside the city. The wall protects them. But every wall has gates, or else you can't get in, you can't get out. And the gates, they're gatekeepers, and that's why you protect the inside the, 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 the people inside the city. So, as, he, as the Gemara says, and the Alter Rebbe says this in Tanya extensively, the small city is the body, meaning the human being. This body is exposed to a world with elements, uh, not just the weather elements and not just um, physical elements, but also psychological, emotional, and other influences around us that can affect us, not always for the positive, so you have to have a wall around your city. And that wall is the human being's defense mechanism, our, our armor. But that wall can be sealed completely because there's a need to interact with the world around us. So how do you interact without being vulnerable and hurt by destructive forces? So like a house, you have your own home. Your home has a door, has several doors, has gates. And the gates are the gate, and you need to place gatekeepers, and that's the shaftim v'shaytim, the judges and the law enforcers, the gatekeepers that should make sure that your eyes don't wander in the wrong place, that you look at what you should be looking at, the ears should be listening to what they should be listening to, the nose, the smell should smell what it should be smelling, and the mouth, both what we take into our mouth, what we taste, and what we speak, should all be done with a an accountability. So how much more fitting is that to the month of El? That's exactly what El is about, is to check our eyes and our ears and our nose and our mouth, basically our five senses. The sense of touch is not mentioned here. Sometimes touch is not mentioned, as the Rambam writes in Meir Nevuchim, that, that's a, that in Teir you don't find Mishush because it's a very, it's a very crass and a very, a very uh, materialistic form of a sense. But the other senses are taste, touch, Sight, sound, taste, and touch. <clears throat> Sorry, not touch, taste and smell. So those are covered in the seven gates. And we place gatekeepers to make sure that what goes in and what goes out is done in the best possible way. And that's the con- connection to Shevdim in the, this week's chapter. So that's the Chassidus applied that relates to the time and we're in living with the time. And with that, let us go into some of the questions and before we go into that, let me make my announcement, a usually weekly announcement for those that are already familiar or those that are new to this program. This program has been going on now for 275 episodes. We're talking over six years. We're in the sixth year. And thank God it's been very successful in the sense a lot of people listening in, a lot of people writing questions, the tremendous interaction, which really makes it so rich. The experience, it's not a one-way street. It's not just me speaking here. I'm responding to comments and questions and counter comments and counter arguments and so on. So we have designated an entire website just for this because of its growth. It's called chassidusapply.com where you can find all the episodes, previous episodes. You can download podcasts and uh, and all different platforms. Listen to it whenever you at your own leisure. You can also post an anonymous question, completely anonymous at the forum there. So any questions... All questions are welcome. All questions will be answered. It takes time sometimes because there's a backlog. 
but that's uh, only a sign of the success of this program. And of course, there's also the different uh, resources that you can find there, including the essays. Last five years, we've done an essay contest, engaging and including people from all over the world and all walks of life, especially students, in writing essays that apply chassidus to life, taking an idea of chassidus, applying it to a contemporary challenge or issue. It can all be found at chassidusapply.com. And, of course, always to mention, especially we're going to the month of El when we increase in charity, that we really depend on your support, not just moral and psychological, emotional support, but also financial support in sponsoring a program in honor or memory of a loved one. So please be gracious and be kind and help us out both to continue and to expand this program. And thank you in advance. With that, let us go into um, the topics, but they'll begin with cross-referencing on the, that which I just discussed about Elul and Sheftim. So quite a number of episodes where these topics are addressed. Previous episodes, 30 and 31, 34, 79 and 80, 130, 224, 225, 228, and 273. So we'll start with this question. Why doesn't Tate and Judaism celebrate art as it does song? So to elaborate a bit, when you look in the Tate, you'll find song, of course, Nigan, uh, Tfila is sometimes called Nigan, or Shira, Shira Sayam. The other songs that we find is a prominent element in, in Tate and in Judaism. First in Tehidah Shebiksav, Oz Yashem Meisha, the different Shiras, Shiras saying in Pasha Chukas, Shiras, Shiras Dveda, different Shiras that we find a number of times. Such an important element. We find davening, as I said, is called Shira and Song. And of course we see davening has a Nusach that has been passed on, different Nuschois in different synagogues. The idea of a Shliach Tzibur that doesn't just sing, but of course we also have the Levim, the Meshedarim. The Levites were the composers of song in the Beis Amigdash. So song plays a very prominent role. Usually in society, secular society, also say song music, you say music and the arts. Arts include, of course, artistry. I don't mean just artistry in the broad sense. I mean art as in painting. And there you don't find. You don't find anything in the Torah about it. Now, that doesn't mean that there, aren't, there wasn't value. The Beis Amigdash and the Mishkan, of course, built them with beautiful with beautiful embroidery and beautiful, um, and done the most possible way, the way it was sculpted, the gold, the silver, the copper, and everything used in the base. But we're talking about art as making a picture of a person or of a landscape or some other picture. You don't find that. So, the obvious reason for it is, and we'll go back to the secular world, in the secular world, you do find it. You find them both very prominent composition of music, and the great artists throughout history. So, there's, the first thing that needs to be pointed out is that when it comes to art, including even two-dimensional art, especially three-dimensional, when you talk about sculpting, there's the issue of not to make a pestle, not to make something in the image that is not just the image of God, the image of a human being even. We were careful not to do that. And therefore, you could say that spilled over, that was always looked upon or frowned upon not to be involved in art on a very basic level. Because you're replicating something that is not the thing itself, and we always avoid doing that. Even making an image of something like similar to the Besam English is, is not allowed. And the same thing with a human being who's creating the divine image. 
So this was something that was avoided. This does not mean, just for the record, that making art is necessarily forbidden, even though there is discussion by different achrenim on the matter. However, that is one of the main reasons. But what's the logic behind it? The logic behind it is, why, why are we making art? We're replicating something. For what purpose? It could be a beautiful replication, and it could be a genius form of art. When you're doing music and song, is a way of serving God. You're singing from your heart. It's called Song is an expression of the heart and soul. So though art is also an expression, someone through an artist expresses a deep amount, but at the end of the day, it's not just a pure expression, it's the creation of something. In song, is the expression itself. The expression can end up creating a song that people sing. And they replicate that song, the Noim Zmiris Yisrael, the songs that, that Dovid HaMelech sang to God, and we sing as well. But in art, the art itself is not itself a service. We'll soon talk about whether you can use it for serving God, but it itself is not a service. It can be an act of genius, it can be a stroke of genius, it can be beautiful, it can inspire as well, but it doesn't have, doesn't have quite the same type of expression. Some even say that when it comes to art, art is really, I'll use Picasso's expression, he said art is the lie, biggest lie that reveals a deeper truth. Because art is not real, it's always the artist's version and rendition of something he's seen. Or she's seen. But it reveals a deeper truth because the artist looks at something and looks deeper into it, as we'll soon read in a moment from a Rebbe's letter on this topic. So the mere fact of creating it is not necessarily creating something that is a, tr- a truth. It could be a beautiful rendition and it could reveal many things, but it doesn't have quite that type of natural reaction of song, singing a song. So you, could, so you can say that even though it's true, when it came to the Mishkan, it was the Tovu Alaizim, the women that were craftswomen, and they were the craftsmen that were made to make everything beautiful. And, but that was not art. That was creating actually materials that would be used in the Mishkan. But song, the Levim sang and composed songs. You don't find that someone said, let's create art and hang up art in the, in the Mishkan or the Beis Amigdash, or hang up art elsewhere to remind us of that. Because art is a replica that has some of the elements that can be seen as being a little off not the original, and even trying to replace the original. So I'm not going to suggest it's anything, God forbid, like idolatry, but it's that type of idea of creating something in the image of something else. And that is something that we always avoided doing. And yet you find, especially in the later years, we do find that art has become, we have Jewish artists, we have Hasidic artists, and we have references to art in different places, especially in letters of the Rebbe, we have the story of the Friedrich Rebbe going to the museum in, in, uh, in France, where he the three lessons with the, uh, that he learned from the, the, the Rebbe Rashab. We had three lessons, the, three, the lessons he learned from those three paintings and other elements like that. So you see from that that it's not something that is not allowed to uh, purchase art or not allowed to create art, just talking about in comparison to songs, and so on. So we have a few things from the Rebbe on this topic, but I want to read another question on this topic before I go on. In Pashas like Truman Tetzava and others, the Torah and Chazal could have used pictures to better describe the kalim of the Mishkin and clothes of the Kahanim. The containers, the vessels in the Mishkin, in the sanctuary, and the clothes of the priests. Like we see in all the Nuchamashim, Yes, they make these designs to make it easier to understand. Why is there lack of pictures and a preference to use words only? What lesson is that to us? 
So then I would answer with the same idea than what I just said right now. That we use it today to help to be a teacher's aid, a student's aid, to be able to understand is obvious. But that the Torah itself should use pictures, it never used pictures. Even though you do find from time to time in different commentaries, they sometimes will draw something, but it's, it's very rare and in between. And uh, it's not something that's commonly used. The answer I would give is because a picture, God created the human being in the image of God. That's reserved to God to create pictures and images. Beyond that, God is beyond image and beyond the Adam Hu, like Dmus Adam. And we stay away from making a Dmus and Selim of an image or a likeness of any, especially a human being. But in general, we stay away from that type of thing. So that's why the Taylor does not use pictures. No, it's text. Text describes the idea, and you have to use your Seich, and you have to envision it yourself. Again, that doesn't mean we can't use it as an aid, but it's not not originally, this is not the Tata approach to describing something. Okay. So now, I want to also refer you to episodes 120, 178, 197, 224, where I talked about art and music a bit as well. So now there's a few letters from the Rebbe which shed some light on this whole topic. I want to begin with a, with a, um, a letter... Uh, a letter or yechitis, let me just see here. Here. Uh, it was uh, Handel Lieberman was a great Hasidic artist. And he had issues with uh, reconciling art with especially the way art is taught and the schools you teach it and the type of environment where it's taught but that, but barring that, putting that aside, he had issues. So he says in a Yechidus, he said, he tells a story. One day, many years ago, I came to the Rebbe. The Rebbe asked me, he said, how is your art coming along? So I answered, I want to hold an exhibition. And the Rebbe said, yes, sir, yeah, of course, you should. Each person on this earth is allotted a task. You have a talent, use it. Use it to encourage Jews to return to their Judaism. True. In the old days, painting was not considered an acceptable way to achieve the same. Today it is. It is your way. So that's one thing we have in the Yechidus. Then we have a few letters, and I'll just refer you. If anybody wants these copies of these letters, just send us your email address in the forum, because without your email address, we'd have no way of communicating, contacting you. And we'll send you the, these, uh, these letters, the copies of these letters. So just a selection of a few that I just looked at quickly. In one letter that Rebbe is writing about art, and, uh, and he's, he quotes um, a, uh, Mr. Chaim Yaakov Lipschitz, who was an artist, an ex- exhibition. So he's, the Rebbe writes, I've known him for many years. The point is that those who have been divinely gifted in art, I'm quoting now from a letter from Tavshin Chavches, 5th of Kislev 5728. Those who have been divinely gifted in art, whether sculpture or painting, and the like, have the privilege of being able to convert an inanimate thing, such as a brush, paint, and canvas, or wood and stone, into living form. In a deeper sense, it is the ability to transform to a certain extent the material into spiritual, even where the creation is in still life, and certainly where the artistic work has to do with living creatures and humans. How much more so if the art medium is used to advance ideas, especially reflecting Torah and Mitzvahs, which would raise artistic skill to its highest level. Indeed, this is the ultimate purpose of the exhibition, which hopefully will impress and inspire the viewers with higher emotions and concepts of Yiddishkeit imbued with the spirit of Chassidus and make them two vehicles of disseminating Yiddishkeit in their environment and particularly through the educational institutions. 
Okay, one letter. Another one is a letter actually to, again to Handel Lieberman. This is dated uh, early on, Tavshin Yud Aleph, 24th of other two, 5711. And here he was writing how he was depressed and he was not feeling, he was feeling down. And the Rebbe uses art. Since you're an artist, let me tell you a lesson. As you surely are aware, the primary talent of an artist is the ability to step away from the externalities of the thing and disregarding its outer form, gaze into its innerness and perceive its essence, and to be able to convey this in his painting. Thus the object is revealed as it has never been seen before, since its inner content was obscured by secondary things. The artist exposes the essence of the thing he portrays, causing the one who looks at the painting to perceive it in another truer light and to realize that his prior perception was deficient. And this is one of the foundations of man's service in his creator, as the Rebbe continues in the letter. So here again you see that even though art was not used as a form of Avedus Hashem, but today the Rebbe is saying it could be used, and those already involved in it obviously should make an attempt to use it for Kedusha. And then one final letter from 25th of Sivan, Tov Shalom at Zion, 5737, talking about light and shade. Many pieces of the fine art involved an interplay of light and shadow, key elements in the composition of almost every artistic work. And the Rebbe goes on to explain how light and shadow is a reflection of a Tera concept of using darkness and light in reflecting the truths of the divine. So summing up, and there's more, summing up, Art and music and song are not exactly in the same level. That doesn't mean you can't use art. It's just like you can use mathematics. Mathematics was also not used by Tater. You used mathematics in Hilchas Eidevin or in other halachas, Hilchas Kiddush you need to know astronomy. But it's not the study of astronomy as an end in itself. It's part of those halachas. So you could say the same thing with the art. Music was a save, even of Avedis, Avedis Hashem, davening with a song, the Levim composing the Gunim. David HaMelech writing a whole sefer, Nu'im Zmiris Yisrael, Shira of Tehillim, and on and on, and different songs. Art was never seen as such. That does not mean that art cannot be used in that way. One final thing, this I personally remember, Baruch Nachshon, great Israeli artist, uh, was by the Rebbe, and he talks about it in different interviews. In Tav Shlamet Ches, he wanted to make an exhibit, he didn't have where, so the Rebbe told him to use the corner building in Kingston Eastern Parkway. And there he made the exhibit, and the Rebbe said, I will come to see it. And the Rebbe came to the second floor in 788, the only time those of us that were in the building working, they were able to be zeicher, we were there. And the Rebbe went and commented on the art and uh, the different reactions. Very fascinating. He actually, one interesting thing, Baruch Rebbe asked Baruch Nachshon if anybody's bought any of the art. So he says, when people hear the prize, they faint. And the Rebbe smiled and said, you should only do art for healthy people. Anyway, just as an aside. So there again you see the Rebbe using art and showing him lessons from it and obviously encouraging him to use a talent as the Rebbe so so passionate in t- telling people to use your talent in the fullest way possible way. And of course, not just to create art as an art, as an end in itself, but the way of reflecting and revealing deeper truths, as I just read. And of course, in helping Eden and people in general to become closer to God and closer to Tehra and Mitzvahs. So I hope I did justice to this subject. Obviously, it's a, it's a large topic. I've never talked about it before. So if anybody has any comments, has feedback, other sources from the Rebbe or other places that I did not touch upon, I really would be, uh, I'd really love to hear from you. And please send me uh, whatever you have. And I'll also, of course, Tayelis Rabim 
for the benefit of everybody, as I'll share it on this program in future episodes. Let's go to the next question. The next question. is how should we relate to rabbis with different standards? Okay. So the, one of the ways, this was a question that came in from different people, different wording. I'll read one example. How should we relate as Lubavitchers to other rabbis such as modern Orthodox? But the truth is the question, as I said from many others, is a broader one, not necessarily categorizing any particular group, just reading what this individual wrote. It's people with different standards. Should we be concerned with, for example, someone, a rabbi that shaves or has different standards or differences in kashras, in kosher? Should we ask them halachic questions if they're considered experts and no Lubavitcher Rav is available? So obviously a Lubavitcher is asking this. Should we invite them to give classes, shiurim and yeshivas? How should we understand the Rebbe giving great COVID to the Algonar of Soloveitchik, especially in light of our differences with, for example, Chol of Yisrael. So first of all, let me just make it very clear. I've never heard uh, that Rabbi Soloveitchik was against Chol of Yisrael. And personally, he may have eaten Chol of Yisrael, and I most likely did. The question is whether all his students and others, and they used a different atatim, so I don't know, that, I just want to make sure, since I'm reading, reading the question, it shouldn't be, even though the question may be thinking this way, but I want to just correct it for the record so it shouldn't come across the wrong way. Thank you very much. Okay, so generally I want to refer you to episodes 159, 236, and 236. Overall, our attitude to everybody, whether it's a rabbi or to a Jew, any Jew, is with Aves Yisrael, is with love. When we talk about rabbis, the standard for a rabbi is, of course, halacha. Halacha. Now, in halacha, we know itself, there are many rabbis have different standards in halacha itself. As long as it's within the framework, within the misgeras, within the context, of legitimate halachic interpretation, there is room for different interpreters. There are people who are more makel, more lenient, there are people who are more strict. As long as it's within that framework. As long as it's within that framework, a rabbi is a rabbi. If he has smicha, which means ordination, and he has the knowledge, and he has the shimush, which is uh, like residency, uh, um, uh, uh, residency or apprenticeship, or whatever you want to call it, and then he's a practicing rav, he's a practicing rav. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein was a great, one of the greatest poskim that ever sent people to him. He was not a Chabadnik, he was not a Lubavitcher. Rabbi Shlem is Orbach, there were others, many. So as long as you're talking about a legitimate rabbi, the question, I'm not sure what the question is. The attitude is, the way the Tater says, that you treat rabbis with respect. Now, if you're saying it's a rabbi that's not a locha, a rabbi that is breaking law, God forbid, then by that definition, he's really not a rabbi. He's disqualifying himself. A rabbi is not the title one, get, one takes upon themselves. It's how they live up to the title. And the tater tells us, she'll say, what are the standards? That's already beyond the scope of this discussion here. This you have to go to Rabbanim you do trust. We have laws and Hilchas Mamrim and other halachas that talk about what defines halacha, what is the category of halacha. Of course, you'll have some people say that rabbi is, is gone outside of the pale, and this rabbi will say, that rabbi is no good, but I want to stay away from politics and personalization. There are objective standards what makes something halacha, just like Shammai and Hill had disagreements, but it was both based on the Yud Gimel Midrash HaTeda Nidresh Bem, the 13th methodology, the Teda, the principles, the way Teda is uh, applied and taught and, um, and, uh, and, and uh, brought into, into legal decisions. The same thing applies today. 
So to go now across the board and start going to each rabbi and saying where that rabbi fits, that's something that legitimate rabbis can be consulted if there's a question. If you hear about a rabbi who's you hear is doing things that seemingly are dubious or questionable halachically, so you can look into it, but always with, with uh, respect because you may not have heard right. You may not have, maybe he is basing it on something. This doesn't mean it has to be your standard. Each one of us has to find our rabbanim that we, that we go by our standard. Just because somebody has a different standard doesn't make them outside of the category of halacha. And the word labavitcher, even though I understand where you're coming from, but we are teda people. We're all coming from the same teda. Teda achas lukolana. One teda was given to us at Mount Sinai. Yes, there are 12 different tribes and 12 different applications and 12 different kavonis and many more. There are differences between, between, uh, between Sfardim and Ashkenazim. And within Ashkenazim itself, there were different kahilas, different communities, different nuschois, different ways, different forms of davening, language and davening, how much is said, how much is not said. And each one has their menhogim and customs, nada or nada or pashta. Like river rivers, that rivers that split and, and branch off into different ways. They're all within, as long as they're all within that framework of Teda, it's actually beautiful. It's a beautiful tapestry and harmony of so many different. The Alter Rebbe, when he made the Siddur, it says that he took from 100 different Siddurim, Nuschayis, and made the Nusach of uh, the Nusach Chabad. That doesn't legitimize other Nuschayis. Obviously, once you follow something, you have to follow it. And the Rebbe was very keen that when people who became Chabad Chassidim, that they should maintain their customs and maintain their garments and maintain the lavush, whether it was the Moroccan boy, children, students, or it was uh, from other Chassidish Shikrais and other Chassidish communities. Why? Because there's a holiness to customs. Now, we're, not, we're talking about black, white, black, white, tater mitzvahs. Even in Halacha itself, you have Tfilin Rabbein Atam, you have Tfilin of Rashi. We talked about this last week, the diversity. As long as it's within the framework, then that's, it's tater, period. What standard you should choose, that's already up to your Yerushalayim, where you are, talk to your Rav, and, and create and, and determine where you want to be, what you grew up with, and so on. But that doesn't take away from the validity of other Rabbanim. And as I said, if it's someone who's not in that structure or framework, that's another story, it's a different discussion altogether. Okay. Um, as far as Chol Yisrael, I spoke about this a number of times, and that I refer you to other episodes. I don't even have them here because I wasn't going to speak about it. Next question. Considering the Rebbe refusing to receive a new car as a gift, what should our attitude be to receiving gifts? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I saw a video of the Rebbe refusing a new car as a present. Yes, it was a video going around. With the Rebbe, the, the new car, the Rebbe came out of 770 and waited and waited. He wanted the old car and he said, Someone who despises gifts shall live. And the Rebbe just refused to go into that car until they brought the old car. Was the Rebbe not aware of this present, meaning gift, until he came outside and saw it? Also, aren't we taught Chassidus to use out everything for Hashem? When, where do we, and when do we draw this line, the line? Should I not, should I not take presents Gifts from others, from people. Okay, I don't know all the details of the story. I saw what you, every, most people saw. I don't know if the Rebbe was told beforehand. It appears to me he wasn't, because he would have said it then. Why would he embarrass anyone? Why would he do anything like that in public? Seems to me it was a surprise, like a surprise gift, which I think may add to the, to the equation. Because, of course, the Rebbe did receive gifts. People gave the Rebbe things, and he took them. Not everything, but there were things that he took. 
I just uh, was reading somewhere about, talk about artists. There was an artist who came with different types of art to the Rebbe, and they wanted to give the Rebbe. The Rebbe asked him, is this for me? So he said, the Rebbe wants something. The Rebbe says, I looked at them, I think it was one, one piece of art the Rebbe wanted. Then he asked him, is this an original? So he says, it's an original. So he said, I don't want an original. Send me a copy. Make a print of it and send me a print. The point is the Rebbe did take gifts, whether it was my Svarim or other things. He always gave some money for it as well. Maybe that could be the reason because he didn't want to take a pure gift because there is that standard. But to say that not to take gifts, we know there's a concept of a matona in Teda. People give a matona. And a matona, not, not always we repay it. We can, but there's no... Now, of course, the Rebbe had a standard, his own standard, maybe the higher standard, was Sena Matona Siechia, and that's uh, obviously not just commendable, it's the Rebbe standard. In this case, I, you know, you could argue that besides the gift, it was also the surprise of not being told, and suddenly the Rebbe's getting a new car, and it was not like something without... Maybe it was not maybe the Rebbe saw it not as respectful even. But he did say, matonis. he didn't just say, he didn't tell me, why don't you tell me? But it's hard to know what's in the Rebbe's mind. It's hard for us to speculate. So what do we learn from it? That's the bottom line, what we learn from it. To say that we should never take a gift from anybody because the Rebbe did that, look, if you're such a makushet and you could stand on such a standard that you just never take gifts, uh, I'm not going to tell you to take gifts. But I don't know if that's the lesson we have to learn from it. Are we on that madrega? And, uh, and uh, there's many other things we should be doing before maybe that. So I think it's case by case. If it's a gift where it's just an indulgence, then uh, obviously we should have higher standards. If it's a gift, somebody is kindly giving you a gift. You give, you give a chasen a gift to someone. So the chasen kal shouldn't take these gifts. I mean, it's already minig yisrael. It's a minig to give a gift. That Rebbe himself got gifts at his wedding. So I think you have to understand Sena Matonis is also needs to be qualified. It doesn't because it cannot contradict the fact that we have a whole sugis and gemara about about giving gifts to people. Echsidus brings it as well, that if a person is not pleased to another person, they won't give them a gift. And we have a teres called matone and Yerusha and Gedel and all the different things. Matone is a legitimate aspect in Teda and halachas, hilchus matones, matones lavienim, etc., etc. So we have the concept of a gift. So the Pesach is clearly talking about someone who's just taking something without effort, without earning it, and in a way, like an indulgent thing. So this is discussed in different svarim, and I'm not going to go into all the details. So I think that the standard for each one of us has to be discussed with the mashpia and determine where you stand and what kind of gift are we talking about. If it's a gift just to indulge, or it's a gift a person, a kind person, to turn and tell and turn and say, "Here, I'm throwing you back a gift," is also not a cordial thing to do. You know, maybe take the gift. You you don't want to indulge in it. Don't use it, or use it for a different thing. But uh, not to just to throw a give back in someone's face is also not appropriate. So I think this has to be done case by case. And I don't know if you can take the story with the Rebbe as a blanket uh, approach that we, we reject all gifts that come our way. It's also the famous story with Rabbi Yisuf Tevel, Oliver Shalom, when the Rebbetson gave him a chocolate after he helped her carry the bags upstairs. He said, the Rebbetson, you know, I, in Yiddish he said, that I come from a chesidish home and us they taught not to take uh, pay from, for doing a favor to a Jew. And especially from the Rebetzin. And the Rebetzin smiled and said, I think I also, I assume I also come from Chesidah Shalom. And as they taught that when you're given something, you take it, especially a good chocolate. So again, I'm not saying this is a directive, but it's also an interesting way of looking at things. That not everything has to be rejected just because it's a gift. So things have to be done with context and with, with uh, moderation. 
is how I would put it. If anybody has any more comments on this, I welcome them. It's another topic I've not spoken about. You know, people have asked me the questions, are new questions coming in. I said, you know something very interestingly, because they say, how many, how many more episodes can you do? Honestly, I didn't know it would go so long. I don't know how, I, know, I thought it would be a, a few weeks, a few months. And then you run out of questions, you run out of audiences. The audiences have grown. The questions are growing. The questions are very, are very uh, original, like these ones. I've never addressed them. So to me, to me that's a, a, a good sign that people are personally invested in this and actually asking questions on their heart. And when you're talking questions in your own personal life, I think questions go on and on. Life does not end and questions don't end. So we will continue in that context. Okay, if anyone has said comments on this, please share. Next question. Why are older singles looked down upon? So this is a recurrent topic that, yes, I have addressed, and I'll refer to some previous episodes. But since the question comes up time and again, so let me just address it and refer you to times I've spoken about it in the past. Hi, dear Simon. My question for you today is, are older singles worthless? Do they have any value? And why is our community so marriage-based? Why is it, if you're an older single, you're treated like trash and subhuman? Okay, there you go, uncensored. So firstly, I, what you just read, if anybody treats anybody this way, it's their problem. God forbid. God forbid a human being is created by God. Every person deserves and should be treated with the utmost dignity and respect and honor. And the contrary, if somebody's an older single, do you know what they're going through? Don't ever judge someone without being in their shoes. You have to always find somebody, you have to always look at the merit and so on. So this attitude is absolutely obnoxious and disgusting, and in no way am I going to even try to attempt to explain that. I'm not going to explain behavior that, uh, that is not explainable, that's inappropriate. But since you write it, I'm reading it, because there are people that behave that way, and it's completely not a paper Completely. If they want to help you, let them find the shidduch and so on. How do they know what you're going through if you're an older single? Maybe you're suffering, so they should have even more compassion. To look at you as worthless? I, I mean, I just, I'm appalled. Not that I haven't heard of it before, but I'm appalled, and I'm stating it for the record. Question, worthless value? What kind of shaila is that? What's not even, it's not even a havamina otherwise. It's no consideration. And anyone treats like someone like trash and subhuman is themselves that way. Not appropriate behavior, period. So let me just make that clear. Secondly, I want to refer you to episodes 14, 99, 120, 263, 268, and 269, where I discuss this at length in different contexts of the, the way people are treated question someone asked a few, I think the later episodes was that people constantly say to me, a shidduch by you, and they, the insensitive type of way of communicating. So again, all the insensitivity, all type of behavior, this is absolutely inappropriate. Now, of course a community has a standard, and the standard is they'd like to get everyone married off at the young age, in the young, early 20s. I'm talking now Chabad at least. And if someone starts getting older, yeah, they become stigmatized. I don't think it's appropriate because, again, people, we don't know what people go through. Everyone has their challenges. But this is the sad side of any type of, like, um, I would say, ghetto mentality or narrow-mindedness of any community. They have their standards, and anything that stands out is uncomfortable. So, unfortunately, some people will stoop to behavior that's completely inappropriate. 
The rest of us have to look at ourselves and say, you know what, of course we'd love to have our children married at a certain age. We'd love to have everybody married and everybody's happy. But some people have challenges, whatever they may be. And we don't know what they are. And even if you know someone in your own family, you know that they are maybe the problem. Even if that's the case, it's still not a justification to look down and be condescending or in any way dismissive. So people, it's alive, it's an ashamus. Why should we demoralize them more than they're already demoralized? Due to their, their status, meaning they want to be married. So if you want to be of help, find ways, in sensitive, refined ways to help people. Definitely not this behavior. And I talked about this at length. So from my point of view, it doesn't matter what age you are, you're God's child, you're loved, not just mitzad, you're a human being, you're a mensch. And yes, you have, everybody has their trajectory. And what about people who are married and their marriage isn't going so well? So we're also going to start, we're going to all start looking at each other and whose life exactly cannot be examined under the microscope and come out perfect. So we have to learn that we have to be a little more sensitive. Chidushal is a good month for introspection on that matter. It's very easy to become judgmental, to become dismissive, condescending. Frankly, I see that as one of the terrible midas. It's, it's a midah raw. It's an evil feature in the human being, a characteristic. It's something we have to fight. You know, if you want to analyze it, judgmentalism and condescensionalism usually comes from insecurity. It's not coming from someone who's on such a high level and they just can't tolerate anything that's not on that pure standard. They have their own issues. And in a way, some people even somewhat, like, I don't want to say celebrate other people's misery. But it makes, maybe takes it away from focusing on their own challenges and problems. I don't want to go now into psychoanalysis. I'm only saying it because it's despicable and we have to do everything to eliminate it. And yes, it's usually, it's usually 99.9%, I would say 100%, not coming from Gdusha. It's coming from a bad place. What we have to think about every time you say something to somebody, be sensitive. That which you dislike, don't do it to another. If you were in that person's shoes and you were single or some other challenge or issue you have, would you like someone to look at you like that? This is called working on yourself and not succumbing to the lowest common denominator where we become like, where we become, where we, 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 we behave in ways that are not appropriate for a human being and for a Jew and definitely for a Tzalim Alekim to behave. And those that are in this situation hopefully can find friends and support to get through it and finally find their Shaduchim. May this be the month of El, the month of Chasanis, a month of Chasanis and engagements for all of you and hopefully we can do something to eliminate uh, this, uh, the, this uh, scourge of so many singles, men and women, and finally, everyone getting married and happily married and so on. And do everything possible to help them. Okay. Next. Why isn't more chassidus being translated and made accessible to the mainstream? Okay, this is a question close to my heart. But I've had several different questions came in in this context. I'm going to read one, actually, which is a personal one about a colleague and friend of ours, Olive HaSholem, that passed away this past year. So this came in much earlier, a few months ago, but nevertheless still relevant. But it touches upon this topic and other topics. So let me read it as is. I usually try to avoid mentioning names, but in this case I will make an exception for obvious reasons. Hi, Rab Simon. I would like to speak to you today about Rabbi Yena Aftzin Olavashalom in the context of Vachayit Nalibe, which means the living shall take to heart. 
Firstly, I want to say that whether you liked the Rabbeinu or not, he was a Rav Poyalin, man, a man with full of action. He accomplished a lot. So, I think we all need to continue his work. I want to go through some of the things he was involved with and how everyone can get involved in those areas to some degree. Number one, Shaduchim. All Anash should and could get involved in Shaduchim, especially in light of the Shidduch challenge, either on a smaller scale or on a larger scale, especially since his son said at the Shleshim that the Shaduchim project is open for grabs. And this, of course, follows up the, 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 the previous question. Yes, absolutely. Let's not become judgmental and critical. Let's take it all and become part of the solution, not part of the problem, and try to find ways to help the Shaduchim people who need Shaduchim start thinking about it. That would be a beautiful way of taking your, whatever you've done and how to behave and your reactions to singles, negative reactions, if anyone has such a thing, and turn it into a positive thing of becoming a force of change and growth and helping build Shaduchim. That's a beautiful lesson. Number two, it's been said that Abiyana did many acts of chesed discreetly, that besides the Shaduchim, besides the Shaduchim. So I think we can all increase in acts of kindness, starting with a small act of being kind to our fellow by saying hello to our neighbor and being more welcoming to a newcomer in shul. Till when we are going to exclude people from our inner circle because they don't fit our mold or because of their status, it's below, it's below our dignity to talk to them, negating that attitude, obviously. Don't you think you have a pretty fragile self-esteem if you can't speak to someone who doesn't fit your high status? So to eliminate that and start welcoming everyone, save upon him office with a smile, completely accepting. Excellent lesson number two. And three, last but not least, I want to talk about the translating of Chassidus into English, which was one of Rabbi Yen's biggest projects. I didn't want to talk about this, but since you spoke about this in the last few weeks, that Teda is not copyrighted, so I allow myself to say the following. Although Rabbi Yenu translated a tremendous amount, still most of the Chassidus is still is not yet translated, Rab Simon. Rab Simon, I want to ask you this. Take, for example, the translation of the Tanya. It was completed in the late 60s. Since then, 50 years have passed. Why isn't Teda, Lakuta Teda translated already? Well, parts are, just for the record. We have to remember that the Rebbe, I believe, in the decade of the 80s, basically printed all of the Sfarim of the Rabbeim. Don't you think that Rebbe deserves we should make an effort translating all of Chassidus Chabad? Starting with the classics from each Rebbe, I know, I know it's thinking big, but I think the Rebbe deserves it. You quoted in the last few weeks, episodes 246 through 248, letters of the Friedrich Rebbe and the Rebbe saying that the printing of Chassidus Chabad belongs to Kohos. But how about the translation of Chassidus? Does that belong to Kohos or Sichus in English as well? What I would like to suggest to Absimon is that let's say that the translation of Chassidus is in the domain of certain entities. Shouldn't they allow Yungalai to our Nana Shlichas, but are very gifted and know how to learn Chassidus and to translate and to fundraise as well, shouldn't they, permitted, shouldn't they be permitted to do so? Mashiach now. So your points are all well taken, and I, for one, am the biggest advocate of the more the merrier of translating Chassidus, and yes, Abiyana did a great service, the hundreds of books that he did, his son today, Abshmuli, and May they be successful in continuing this work, including broadening in the translation of the Alter Rebbe Shulchan Aruch and other works of the Rabbeim, and uh, that will help, of course, tremendously help the learning of it for those that don't know the Hebrew or even those that don't know the Hebrew. So I can't say enough about doing everything possible to translate and disseminate and reach Exodus to the mainstream. I would go a step further. The biggest challenge I see 
is not just translating, but translating in a language that can be accessible, not just to people who know the framework and already accept the ideas, but even to people who have never heard of these ideas. We have millions and millions of people out there. That, to me, is even a greater tragedy that hasn't been translated and made accessible to that large, large mainstream audience. Because I have no doubt that if it was, it would make a revolution, a true revolution of Yefutsu Menesecha Chutza. I can go on and on about this, but time is limited. I think Mu'at Marza Kamaruva, this small, this short talking about it with the right emphasis and the right expressions, hopefully make the point and drive the point home. Okay, so thank you for that. Next question. Did the Rebbe ever discuss Jewish extremist attacks against Palestinians? And what is the proper way to view followers of Baruch Goldstein? Baruch Goldstein was someone who killed in Marasa Machpel and Heaven and a whole bunch of uh, uh, Muslims or Arabs years back. And they're, yeah. I don't recall the Rebbe directly speaking about Jewish extremists, to be honest. That doesn't mean that he didn't. If someone has sources where the Rebbe may have spoken about it, whether in Fabrengens or in Yechidis or in letters and so on and so on, please make me aware and I'll be happy to share that. I could say that we know that Rebbe's approach in general to Kanois and uh, Zealots. It's a Teira halachic approach. Extremism in Teira is not acceptable in this context. Pinchas was a Ish Sholem, and that's one exception what he behaved, but it's not something that you can just go and follow that and behave like that. There's a process and there's a way Teira does things, B'dar Kineyam, B'dar Kisholem, the ways of Teda are pleasant and all its paths are peaceful. And that's what the Rebbe always emphasized, even on much slighter things, that when you present something, never with megal, not with nails, meaning not sharp, not critical, not attacking, always in a pleasant way. So I have no doubt if the, the issue of extremism, and maybe the Rebbe didn't even want to be greatest, so didn't even want to recognize it, for sure, that type of approach of killing other people even if they're your enemies, I don't think that Rebbe would condone or advocate that. No question in my mind. Um, now, after the fact, that doesn't mean you have to go make him a martyr bar of Goldstein. He did what he did. And um, unfortunately, it was inappropriate. And I can't see that Rebbe agreeing and definitely not becoming advocates of that type of behavior. I never would believe that Rebbe would say that. Um, so I don't think that we can uh, in any way uh, condone and support um, the followers of what you call Baruch Goldstein or other such type of extremists. It's not the Taylor way, it's not the way we do things. That's what I have to say about this topic. Um, and uh, even though the Rebbe was very adamant, obviously, about the Shtochim in Eretz Yisrael, but he never allowed it to be public strikes and to come out publicly and demonstrate against the Israeli government because he didn't want to give feed any enemies. The Rebbe wanted the inf- to influence from within that influence that they themselves should change their positions, but not through doing things against them or attacking them or undermining them, boycotting and other things. The Rebbe was always against that. So that tells you enough. So does that not compromise the Rebbe's position? The question is how to challenge something you don't agree with. You don't do it through violence and you don't do it through aggressive aggression and through other forms of, um, of attacking the other party. There's many ways to do it. And, uh, that was the key thing, the way the Rebbe did it, that distinguished the Rebbe from others without in any way minimizing the position the Rebbe had on these matters. Okay, next. So we have uh, two follow-up. Uh, let's see here. 
So first of all, it's a bunch of follow-ups I'm going to do right now. In episode 273, I was speaking about Chofov. So I misspoke. I spoke there about a beautiful, powerful sikha that Rebbe talks about himself, where he learned to, where, from his gifts of the Yankasa when he was a child in his father's home, or a young man in his father's home. So I quoted, I said, Yudalaf Nisan Tov Shalamites. I want to correct it. It's Chof of Tov Shalamites. Sif Samach, if you want to look it up in the Hanocha. So that's just a correction. Um, a, a second, someone asked about Space Launch. I recall you mentioned this one in one of your programs. Can you please let us know where? My question is, what do we learn from Israel launching a spacecraft today? So this was written a while ago, today meaning back in February. So I don't recall speaking about Israel launching. Maybe, maybe I don't remember myself speaking about it. I did speak about the 50 years from landing on the moon in episode 269, the first manned lunar landing in July 1969. In July 2019, I spoke about it in episode 269. Okay. And the final uh, follow-up is... Actually, two more, two more. Mail Mashpia. Yeah, so I was talking about being a male Mashpia for women. So someone points out, concerning your last talk on Chassidus Supply 274, I asked the Rebbe in Yechidus who should be my Mashpia. The Rebbe told me my teacher, who he named, should be my Mashpia. I am female and my Mashpia is male. I asked the Rebbe again in another Yechidus, and the Rebbe still wanted this person to be my Mashpia. This person is, a rab- is Rabbi Alter Metzger. I was very surprised to hear from people now that a mashpia should be the same gender as the person asking. So yes, I spoke about it. And remember, there's mashpim and there's mashpim. There's a mashpia that's like a rov, a more senior veteran position. So rov, a rov, is usually going to be a male. But that's different than a mashpia that you speak about all your most personal, intimate matters. And I think that's, that's one major distinction between the two. Also, depends who, who the individual is, and there are exceptions. And yeah, but generally speaking, it's healthier, same gender, mashpim. That, I stand by that, and I don't think it's a contradiction to what you are quoting. Okay, one more follow-up. Iskafia for pregnant women, last week's episode 274. The mashpia one was episode 248, just for the record. And, and 274. Okay. You recently addressed the issue of Eskafia for a pregnant woman. That was last week. As a mother, I was made aware of the Gemara that mentions that when a mother eats that which her body craves during pregnancy, her baby will eat well after birth. Having had the experience of infants who had a very difficult time eating well, this seems to be a significant point. I do not have the Gemara source handy. My apologies. Parenthetically, interestingly, there's a discussion of this form of this from a nutritional medical vantage point as well. So I spoke last week about Iskafia of pregnant women, that a pregnancy itself is Iskafia, and thank you for pointing it out. Uh, the Gemara, I would say, uh, if you heard that, uh, is the Mishnah, famous Mishnah in Yuma, Pei Beis Omer Aleph. It could be there's another Gemara in Gitin maybe, or others. If somebody knows something more, please share. But in, in, in Yuma, Pei Beis Omer Aleph, the famous Mishnah, that a woman on Yom Kippur smells uh, food. A pregnant woman, I should say. Pregnant woman said, and she craves it. So it says that you have to give it to her because it can affect her and the pregnancy and her child. Which we derive from that, that her craving, obviously by giving it to her, will help the child. And then goes a whole discussion about Yom Kippur and about kosher, not kosher, and how to do it and so on. But that's a basis that a pregnant woman, yes, her craving 
has an effect, and that's why the halacha reckons with it. There may be more on this topic, but thank you for pointing that out. And um, it's a really somewhat, somewhat tangential to what I spoke about, but, uh, but thank you for completing the record. Okay. With that, we are going to go now to the Chesidus question. Chesidus question is a question on the end of Pedek Choftes in Tanya. So let's first tell you what it says in Tanya, and then I'll read the question this person is asking. In Tanya, Pedek Choftes, the Alter Rebbe addresses the issue that let's say after all the, everything you do, you can't muster up the energy to be able to do anything with your Yetzirah, with your Nefesh Habamis. What could you do? The Nefesh Habamis is blocking your ability to love God, to serve God properly, and so on. The language of the Alter Rebbe. There are many times, they have Tim Tamalev, the heart is blocked. It becomes like a stone. And he cannot open it, to service of the heart, which is davening. So he says, what's the Eitzah? The Eitzah is Bitush. What is Bitush? He brings from the Zayah that sometimes when you want to get the sparks to fly, the flame to catch in a piece of wood that's like a block of wood that's just resistant, you have to strike it. And he goes on to speaking about how you have to like belittle and humiliate that part of the, an animal soul. That's what he goes on to say. And when you do that, that itself will reveal the real amuna that's inside of a person. That's the gist of it. I mean, it's a little deeper than that, obviously. I'm, I'm being uh, I'm, I'm just superficially just reviewing it. But then he says, before I get to the end of the Pedic, he says, and by doing that, just a moment, um, and recognizing, goes deeper, that recognizing, what, what, how do you do it? By recognizing and saying, the Nefesh Abamish, you're just blocking the light of godliness, the truth of godliness in my life. And by recognizing that it's a darkness that wants to be eliminated, that alone breaks the resistance. That's the point, and the real godly soul gets revealed. So then at the end of the Pedic, the Alter Rebbe says that this is really Mephurish and Teir. In the Parsha Maraglim, what happens? The Maraglim come back, and they give a very bad report about Etzisrael. I'm just going to use the language of the Alter Rebbe. Okay? And they cause the whole nation to get to begin to uh, also begin to cry and just a minute please yeah they get the whole nation to also feel that way so what happens next here they didn't believe they said they say this, this, this Israel, this promised land, is stronger, not just stronger than us, stronger than God. They didn't believe in God's possibility. And then suddenly you hear that they change. Once they hear the, 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 that Rabbeinu got, Hashem gets angry at them and promises that they will not enter at Yisrael, uh, there's a change of mind. And the Alter Rebbe says, suddenly, here we are, and we want to go up to at Yisrael. So the Alter Rebbe says, From where suddenly did return to them the faith in God's, in God's potential. Moshe didn't show them any miracle. They would just yell that. And to say the yelling did it is not enough because they didn't believe in God's power. 
So suddenly, because God said you can't, that you can't go into the soul, that will that they will believe it. So the Alter Rebbe answers because they were really maminim bnei maminim before. They really have inner faith. It's just that the nefesh is the outer blocked it. So by the yelling, which means like putting them down and showing them how this this resistance to God is so despicable and so anti everything that's true, that revealed the amuna. That's the general gist of it. So it's a riot to what the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya. So the questioner asks, if the Maraglim became Maminim, and, and remember the Rebbe points out, it's not just the Maraglim, the Eden in general. They became Maminim now, suddenly as the Alter Rebbe points out, why is it they didn't listen to God again and wanted to go up without permission? Because what, what does the Pesach say afterwards? It says, yes, they said they want to go up. Now to Eretz Yisrael, they had a change of heart. But then right afterwards the Pesach says, The Pesach says that God said, no, you can't go. So again, they're defying God. So how's the Alter Rebbe saying this is a riot that they really got, the, the going up to Etzosol was not necessarily a positive thing. So the answer, if you look inside the Psukim, and this is different people, commentaries on Tanya explain, that even though it sounds that what they complained to go up to Etzosol was not coming from a positive place, because Hashem said, Meshach told him the, the God's Ratzon in the Pesukim, I'm just saying, Pesuk Membeiz, Memdala, the Memhei, that God said it's not yet time for you to go up. So, number one, they didn't know that. When they said we want to go, they had to say it is true. That's number one. Before they said it was too powerful for us, now they want to go. So, they didn't know that God would say, no, it's not the time yet. So the only reason they did say it is because of their amunah. But there's an additional point. They did it mitzad amunah in Hashem. And Eira Chaim HaKadosh, on the Pesach there, Memdalet says, that the fact that after they mutineered against God, now they wanted to correct it, to, to trust God and decide with faith. That's why they said, let's go to Eretz Yisrael. And the Gemara in Shabbos, the Tzadik Zayin Aleph says, that they were not called real Rishoyim Mamish. And it was a form of a serious nefesh, actually, ready to go to Eretz Yisrael. So there was a change of heart. It wasn't meant to be, because that's not what the Abishta wanted, but as far as the Alter Rebbe, the proof what he wants to bring out, it's intact, because this was not defying God. It was, the intentions were good intentions, and it was not, they didn't even yet hear that God said, don't go yet. So that's the answer to your question. But thank you for that, and this is, of course, a form you could ask any questions on Chassidus, we always dedicate at the end of the program before the essays, questions on chassidus. And now we'll go to the three essays. This is all from Essay Contest 2019. The last essay contest, the fifth essay contest. These essays are new essays. They're posted weekly. So they already have around 50 posted. And this is new essays that we're posting as we go each week. And you can see them at chassidusupply.com, essays. And if you subscribe to our weekly emails, we also send out a notice of the of these uh, of the new essays, I should also mention before I read them that we also have a week a daily email now going out every day of sixty days, based on my book Sixty Days: A Spiritual Guide to the High Holidays that travels through the journey from Rishchidosh El all the way to Rishchidosh Cheshvan. We also did last year, and we'll make it available a podcast which you can also access every day, a few minutes, a minute to three minutes that I speak about the message from each day of Elul and then Tishrei, going through the whole. 60-day period. So let's now do the essays, three essays. The first essay is 
the power of influence, the power of of Ashpa. Michal Yaffa Simchovich, age 39, Kfar Chabad, Israel. Balanit Tzifriah. Okay. So, opening up with a question, with a comment from the Rebbe's Fabreng Shabbos Chazain, that the, when the Rebbe came out with the idea of a Kharav, a heartfelt request, and it should be publicized everywhere, that is Kadai, that every person, men, women, and children, have a point a Rav. So, this essay is about exactly that. That was Shabbos Tvorim Chazain Tov Shemem Vov. And uh, goes on to discuss this in context of what exactly is a mashpia, which the Rebbe spoke about already, Yutas Kislev Tov Lamed Zayin. And the idea of mashpia from the word Shefa. Shefa Shal Shefa, Shefa. As opposed to Chassidus says, Oyer is light, Shefa is a flow. And there are many distinctions. And in this case, the Rebbe explains, and this essay elaborates, how the power of mashpia is not Oyer, not just to be a reflection of the source, but to be engaged with and affected by the influence that you have and so on. So it has to be a type of commitment to that. And that's what a true mashpia is. And goes on to describe and summarizes what a true mashpia is. And how it comes down into action. In each generation, especially in our time. Very powerful and very relevant and important essay because it's one of the most important chayros of the Rebbe, one of the directives that I maintain has not been fulfilled to the fullest and can do a lot more we can do for it. So thank you for that. Next essay is Yusaydis Lachaim Smechim, the foundations for a joyous life. Avigail Slonim, age 45, Mitzper Ramon Israel, Ashlicha, Ashlicha, yeah. In the last years, I'm just loosely translating, modern psychology and the literature of this new age a new age literature, talks a lot about controlling your thoughts and that how thought controls your actions, the power of attraction. In truth, when you look through this in Tanya, she writes, you really come away with a much more fundamental approach to all of this. And this essay is going to address that. And does it through the of the conquering of the seven nations of Israel, which Siddhis explains, it refers to the seven emotions. Knani, Chiti, Ameri, Prizi, Chivi, Yivusi, and Gergoshi. Really powerful, comprehensive job in this essay in doing so. That really brings the, brings the point pound, brings the point out that in so many ways, that which we know today that's being very popular today something that's fundamental to Teir and Chassidus for many years before, and how you can implement it in our own ways, going through these seven different steps. The seven steps are the personality, separation, submission, sweetening. Those are the main steps she points out. Okay. Very well uh, referenced as well and annotated. Thank you for that. And finally, essay number three is those two on Hebrew. This one is in English. Watch your words. By Esther, I apologize if I don't pronounce it right, Prokachia or Prokachia? Prokachia. Age 19, P-R-O-C-A-C-C-I-A. Age 19, Brooklyn, New York, 
school based Chaya Meshka Seminary, Montreal. Throughout our lives, she writes, there have been innumerable moments in which people have made biting comments that have hurt us. We, all, we were all victims at some point or another of the blade of an innocent-looking string of words that have affected us in a negative fashion. Some people's lives have been completely crushed since the spoken word is as mighty as the power of creation itself. Because of this, awareness must be spread as to avoid the furtherance of such detrimental misconduct. Hasidism teaches, Hasidism teaches that speech impacts the animate and inanimate alike, including water, stones, and air, and is until today an active tool of creation which can be employed by avoiding slander and gossip and consciously choosing to use kind words. And that's what the essay focuses on. The power of words, watching your words, and the power much more than you can ever imagine. So it's a great essay as well because it focuses on a lot of things about how our words affect environment, affect people, affect the vibes themselves. And it's something we all can hear use a lot to remember that words are not just loose. Words have impact. Words create. Words destroy. Words can build. So thank you for that. A very solid essay as well. And just I'm touched again and again every time I read these essays, the different types of people, different backgrounds, different ages, all applying themselves to take siddhis and make them come alive, personally, relevantly, and accessible in all, in all possible ways. So with that, we conclude this week's episode 275 of My Life Siddhis Applied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. And everyone have a very um, fruitful, meaningful, accountable, joyous, compassionate month of Elul. Chidosh HaRachimim, Melech Basoda, where the Melech is accessible to all of us in preparing, in accounting for, and preparing for the new year. Hashana Teva Musuka, Teva, and we'll be here again next Sunday, Mitzvah Hashem. 8 to 9 p.m. Thank you very much.